Thanks, Laura. I'm reading through 1 Kings at the moment, which records the lives of Israel's and Judah's kings. Uh, They lived in their troubled times and we live in ours. What strikes me about 1 Kings is the way the king's whole lives can be efficiently judged by one sentence. The king X did what was evil in the sight of the Lord through his life. Or the king Y did what was right in the sight of the Lord in his life. One's life simply despises or respects God. The effect on the reader of this is, for me at least, is to say, I want to be in the right here with God, living a satisfying life. And being in that category, I don't want to be in the evil, grasping, desperate category because that's what their lives end up looking like, those who despise God. The evil kings match the modern song lyrics and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or perhaps I can't get no satisfaction. Striving against God is so dissatisfying. Knowing God brings peace. I wonder where you go for contentment. How deliberately do you go to God for your longings, to find what you're looking for, to find your satisfaction? In 1 Timothy so far, we've seen God, the, the saving God is our brother who has gone ahead of us in life and through death and even into heaven. The Lord Jesus did what was right in God's eyes, we read. And he says, I'll save you. You're mine. Now walk in my satisfying ways. Pursue godliness. Satisfaction is with me. Three approaches to life are described in these verses that Laura read for us. There's one good path sandwiched between two bad paths, a rose between two thorns, two no's surrounded by God's yes. So first, saying yes to Jesus means saying no to the first thorn, needless controversy. Perhaps you've known those around church circles, perhaps you've even been one, who always focused on things other than Jesus and the gospel. Perhaps the latest controversial theory, a denominational dispute, a new strategy or author or program that's going to fix the church. It's hard to know exactly the nature of the controversy that Paul's addressing to Timothy here, but he's saying stay on track. Verse 2, the gospel and life in accordance with the faith from chapters 1 to 5 are the things you are to teach and insist on. Make the main thing the main thing. As we saw in chapter 1, faithful churches are wonderfully predictable. They follow God's ordinary means of grace, the way God blesses and calls us to follow him. They appreciate Jesus' work on the cross. They're a community of faith, loving one another with clear consciences. They have joy, hope, peace in Jesus. Now, marketers talk of having a consistent message. Well, the church's message has been very consistent for the last 2,000 years through its creeds and confessions. In fact, Andrew Thorburn down in Melbourne is getting in trouble because his church is simply holding on to a confession and his football club doesn't appreciate that. It's not a pretty word, is it? But orthodoxy orthodoxy is to be prized. Historical, confessional, biblical orthodoxy. Christian churches are, by definition, always and ever will be, centering on Christ's person and work for us. The old, old story of Jesus and his love, as the hymn puts it. 
influential Christian books reflect this centre. Mere Christianity, for example, by C.S. Lewis, or The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Knowing God by J.I. Packer, these classics of the Christian faith, centering on the most important things. These are the things, verse 2, you are to teach and insist on, says Paul to Timothy. Now, let go of these interests, and what happens? We're not going to do that experiment in this church, I, I pray. But just as we don't need to put our heads down a toilet to know what's down there, so we don't need to neglect the gospel, the faith, orthodoxy, to see what happens. Thousands of pastors and speakers and authors have already done that experiment through church history and so led millions within the church away from Christ and the simple, clear, wonderful gospel. As we approach the end of this 1 Timothy series, God's repeated warnings here through 2 Peter recently and now 1 Timothy are not just noise in our Bibles. They want us to hear and remember their warnings about straying. And so here, again in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction, this orthodoxy, of whom? Not Peter or Paul in themselves, but of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, the fundamentals of the faith. Verse 4, they are conceited and understand nothing. Uh, Paul's reluctant to name the opponents of the church here. These conceited somebodies are wrong on first principles. Verse 4, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have robbed of, been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain or gain. Now, Some people, you may have noticed, perhaps you are one, are um, controversialists by disposition. It's one of the 16 personality types to be called the debater, at least on this website I was looking at, the 16 personality types. A debater is a smart and curious thinker who cannot resist an intellectual challenge. Now, there's nothing more righteous or sinful about personality types, but some do like a good dispute just by nature and need to be self-aware. Others simply follow distractedness and becoming distracting over time by focusing on lesser things. Academics, Bible teachers, denominations can tie themselves up in knots over various topics that might be interesting to discuss, but they don't always edify or promote Christ's church, unity in Christ's church. All kinds of Bible teachers you can find on YouTube can lead otherwise sensible Christians into long tailspins of confusion. Some of them don't recover from it. For others, political opinions blend into the sense of what a Christian thinks, arguing for a prickly blend of gospel plus left media messaging or gospel plus right uh, media messaging. The problem is that cultural warriors can't be trusted to lead or influence others within the church when they have another agenda pushing hard. And so a group of unnamed people, Paul refers to as they here in verse 4, is being described But humility calls us to all, each of us, watch out for this tendency in the me and the we, that we might avoid it. So verse 4, taking this to ourselves, do I have an unhealthy interest in controversies or quarrels about words that wind other Christians up and test their self-control when I'm around them? Do I bring friction 
that is not actually coming from Jesus into his gatherings. If we're not careful, we can even use our image of God, godliness as currency for our sub-gospel views. Verse 5, we could try to profit or gain from presenting ourselves as godly and then claim that proud upper hand. Uh, regularly, I've found I've had to pull my own head in and occasionally advise others to pull their heads in if they are stirring up trouble over their pet topics. Like loose cannons, you can't trust where the shots are going. Having a fetish for controversy can make otherwise fruitful Christians quite unreliable and underutilized, and yet left wondering why. Lacking humility, verse 4, Paul detects conceit underneath it all, and excessive pride making us stubborn and defensive, and leading us to make the same old mistakes year after year. Um, I've recently been in an honest conversation where I could have seen things remedied, and I prayed that I might see things remedied. But the humility wasn't there. A loving suggestion, I thought, was met with conceit. And it tends to bring fight or flight into the conversation rather than repentance and life. Um, as my dad used to say, there is none so deaf as those who will not hear. I think it's a general saying, but I think it was going to his teenage boy. There is none so deaf as those who will not hear. So if you get into needless controversy often, God may be calling you to move on from this habit. That's the first thorn. The rose then, verses 6 to 8, is godliness. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. There's that word godliness again. We see this four times in 2 Peter, this word, and eight times in 1 Timothy here, and only two other times in the rest of the New Testament. So we've been in rich godliness uh, fields. Um, I wonder, are we becoming more godly having heard this word repeated so many times in recent weeks? I'd love to hear of your progress in these areas, and you might share with one another ways you're seeking to grow in godliness. What is godliness? The former Anglican Archbishop Sir Marcus Lone rightly says, godliness is a person's, and I quote, a manner of life in its Godward aspect. It speaks of gravity and piety and character in relation to God. The godly man or woman is one whose life is centred in and controlled by the love and fear of God. I can't get no satisfaction. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The good news is when we have God, we realise we have found what we were looking for. Even if we had no idea that it was God as the one we were looking for, the one we needed. Contentment grows as we know God, love God, fear God, walk with God, trust God. Call on God and you will gratefully realize that he alone meets your deepest needs. Fake godliness sells itself cheaply for some other gain, verse 5. Can you imagine selling godliness for some personal motive? It's the bread and butter of prosperity gospel preachers with their millions of followers and donors. If you send money now, I'll pray for you so that your business will succeed. Meanwhile, the truly godly realize that to have God is to have everything. What more than God could one hope to offer or pursue or gain? That's why Marcus Lone continues, Godliness is independent of circumstances and constant in value in time for eternity. I wonder if you've noticed the godly men and women you get to 
rub shoulders with week by week here at DPC. They trust God, they revere him, they express gratitude to God in time, uh, no matter what is going on. So Paul sings hymns in prison. And in our church, particularly at the 9am congregation at the moment, but in our three congregations, we have frail and sick people who keep saying God is faithful to them. Our youth and our students walking with God are no less content than those of us who have accumulated much more. We might reflect on our own financially tidy years as God provided for us as well. But in verse 7, Paul takes us even further back to our arrival into the world, a pauper's arrival, which will match our departure from this world in a casket a little larger than our body, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. The godly man Job, who suffered pain and loss that would crush most people, yet declared, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's our life motto. That's our approach to life. That's our satisfaction and contentment right there. Whatever is going on, may the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord himself is my family, my financial strength, my resources, my food, my bread from heaven. So if you imagine for a moment the Apostle Paul's going to be your house guest, he would be, I think, one of the easiest guests you could ever have. He only needs from creation what a human physically needs. Uh, We would normally add shelter to his list. I like shelter, but Paul says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. He sounds like someone else we might think of who had no place even to lay his head. Jesus, the ultimate model model of godliness. Jesus' godliness earns our salvation. Our godliness never could. But our godliness is our way of saying thank you to him for his. I wonder how this minimalist view of our needs makes you feel. For me, I find it hard to grasp, let alone to get there myself. I like hot showers in addition to food and clothing. I like Wi-Fi and skiing. I like our new lounge that replaced our old one. I like to feel secure. I like to know what I'm doing in the months and years ahead and don't really like living with uncertainty. I like the thought of financial security for retirement and for housing needs. I'm part of a culture that orders a skinny decaf almond milk latte, extra hot please, with half a sugar, and get no reaction at all from the barista as though that's something ordinary. I like having enough money for holidays, eating out, buying what I want. I like Sydney's climate and having uh, Sydney's climate. And uh, after living overseas for a number of years, I like an English-speaking society where I know how things work. As a pastor, I love having an excellent session and committee of management, good congregational leaders, making friends at church, serving in ways that are generally appreciated more than rejected. I could go on, but the more I do, the more distant I feel from Paul and Paul's Christ, who says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. It's revolutionary, isn't it? It's confronting. It's very powerful. 
we could, if called upon to do so, this means, rid ourselves of nearly all of our stuff, be deprived of so many of our preferences, drink instant coffee, and we'll still be okay because we've still got God. Wow. The possibilities of Christian living become vast. What are the limits on what we might do for the Lord? Our gap year students recently found God in Arnhem Land where the gospel is desperately needed. He was available and supportive of them there. In Fiji, another gap year student went and the gospel there is being broadly distorted and needs gospel workers. Gospel workers could go there. God and contentment can be found in Dremoyne and in Mount Druitt in a full-time salary and part-time, a tighter budget, a weeknight perhaps given to a newcomer's group if needed, a day given to help a friend move, a heavy workload because we know sometimes we have to endure through these seasons, a reduced workload perhaps because we might choose to raise the kids with extra time or simply have a season of rest. We can find contentment in that as well. Here we can see why Paul and the early church were so mobile, so available, so responsive to the works of God going on around them. Because the godly, thankful prayers of the saints address their fears. They go to the God who calms their anxieties and doubts and makes them very bold and ambitious. They know that our wounds he dresses, our pain he knows, our hearts only he can fill. Paul isn't denying the practical needs we have. I think he'd agree that it's good to have money enough to go to the dentist, to get to work, to fix a car, to pay the rent. But Paul expands our horizons here by reducing our concerns. We can do all kinds of things anywhere through him who gives us strength. Well, Jesus teaches us even our most basic needs of food and clothing aren't even to stress us. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? No, instead, the godly pray, not to some unknown powerful force, but to our Father in heaven. The kind of Father, the very best of human fathers, only poorly resemble. With our great brother's arrival into the New Testament, Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, instead of addressing him that way, The chief way he calls us to address him in the New Testament is Father. With Jesus as your brother, I want you to address me as he does. Call me Father. And so as the godly Spurgeon put it, Father, in that word is all I could ever ask, all my needs could ever demand, and all my heart could ever desire. I have all of everything throughout all of eternity when I can say, Father. What then do we do with our longings? Uh, We can't stop noticing beauty and beautiful things and enticing, attractive things. But rather than long for them or lust for the house, the spouse, the solitude, the escape, I've learned when I've noticed things attractive to me, I just thank God for them that they exist, for their creation, for their beauty and their appeal, the brilliance of God expressed through that thing. Without following through on the desire to possess them. I can rejoice that one day the heart beneath these longings will be more perfectly met. Look to me, 
the Lord says, your security, your companion, your peace, your refuge, your joy. The longings we have deep within us now for pleasure, whether it's in a person or a holiday, for recognition or respect, for acceptance, for friendship, everything else. C.S. Lewis says these longings are like little arrows that point us to what heaven will be like when they are finally forever perfectly met in Christ and his kingdom. When we see beauty of creation, it's a poor symbol, a poor pointer of something much more beautiful awaiting us. Something we can look forward to. And so godliness without contentment, how can you live in the Father's love and be no different from a craving, dissatisfied world? Yes, our contentment is imperfect now. Our many cravings and longings are awaiting their true object to be nearer. But the miserable, complaining, grumbling, ever-critical Christian has not yet learned to treasure their treasure. The good news has so much to offer and teach us. We've seen thorn, and then rose, and now the second thorn, greed, verses 9 to 11. If God is your wealth, then you won't always be trying to get more earthly stuff. You'll say to yourself often, I have enough, more than enough. And we'll realise that life's trappings are well named. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. David, isn't it normal for people to want more? Well, it didn't seem normal for Jesus, and not so normal for his disciples. We've all heard greed is a trap, but are we so convinced that greed is a trap that we avoid the trap when it threatens us month after month after month, year after year? A trap is only as good as the bait, and the bait's effectiveness. It's called a temptation and a trap, verse 9. I take it for very good reason, because it is enticing. Foolish, harmful desires underneath these acts. We're to recognise them, these desires, and act accordingly, before they plunge us downward. To pursue God, to seek first his kingdom, to be godly in October and in November. This is the alternative to shipwreck on a hundred rocks. As verse 9 says, being plunged into ruin and destruction. Prioritising wealth over spiritual wealth and health. In theory or in practice, is to ignore a very destructive weed in your spiritual garden. Is your garden a garden that is meant to bear fruit for God, so compromised. There's that saying about weeds, one year's seed, seven years weed. You've got to stay on top of them. For verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. I find that word wandered disturbing. It's a chilling word because it lacks drama and it lacks decision And it lacks anyone even possibly noticing. A woman, a man, a family simply let go of Jesus' hand to go about some other business that takes their heart and may never be seen again. It happens too often. I notice Australia has some missing persons. 
You see it sometimes on the news. But the Australian church has so many more. To wander from Jesus and the faith is to, verse 10, pierce themselves with many griefs. God wants to help us away from that grief. Loving money, always wanting more, is culturally normal, but it has already cost the church, and I take it this church as well, far too much. God's great riches, his tap of substantial inner relational spiritual blessings of Christianity, all cease when the living water is no longer sought by us. Christless weekends wander further into Christless months, households, decades, eternity. Flee from the trappings, resist wandering paths, question decisions that seem good for you but have no reference to Christ's kingdom, things that you can't in good conscience pray much about or share perhaps in a home group. Needless controversy, greed, no and no. Godliness, yes. You know, I sense around our church, through lots of stories and conversations, that God is doing amazing, growing work in us. In our youth groups, we just saw a great getaway that the youth had. Uh, I hear about ministries like Hub, home groups. I hear from individuals. A few have shared recently getting into prayer and Bible reading in ways that you haven't in recent months and years. Some families, some adults living in the area have been making renewed efforts even with the youngest of kids, to try to come back to church again and do it regularly when it's hard. Some clearly have a growing appetite for God that is being met in scripture and church gatherings. In other words, God is prompting us towards godliness. This is not coming from Satan or the world. This is God's spirit at work. If this is so, brothers and sisters, then like a surfer who feels the wave drawing the board forward, Now is the time, friends, to paddle all the more deliberately, purposefully, in cooperation with God's spiritual work. Is God not stirring your soul? Then draw all the more near to him in this season. His wind is blowing in your sails? Then raise the sails further and further again, knowing that godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your powerful word that's brought us to newness of life. We know whose we are and we know where we're going. We know what matters in life and what doesn't. Father, forgive us for being consumed with unhelpful things, distracting things, things that don't lead others to know you more, things that don't represent Christ well. Father, we confess too our inflated interest in money and wealth and the things that those things give us. Please, Lord, make us ready to, re- to renounce those things, make us responsive, make us ready to uh, change our habits, our routines, our nighttime schedules, our weekends, to reflect you and spiritual priorities. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.